Let's pray. To our mighty, sovereign, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is good to gather to worship you, the one who is the maker of all things, the one who determines the rising and falling of nations, the one who sets the boundary of the seas, the one who calls the stars by name, and because of the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, the one who calls us your own. Father, as we look around at this sin-saturated world, beginning in our own hearts, we are tempted to despair, to defeat, and to fear. Help us to remember this morning that you are not defeated. Your plans are not and cannot be thwarted, and that ultimately the victory and the glory belong to you and you alone. And because that is true, help us, help this church, Redeemer Church, and your people all over this world to remember it and to live lives such that when others look at us, they would see nothing but you high and lifted up. Help us to love others with a love strong enough to overcome every human thing that would divide us. Not a mealy-mouthed, sentimental love, but one grounded in the rock-solid truth that every single person is made in your image and in the hope that you still save. May that hope inspire us to share the gospel whenever and wherever you give us opportunity. We ask that you would instill in us a deep, robust faith that will stand against all the things of this world. And now I pray for the preaching of your word this morning. I am a broken, unworthy vessel. And my desire is not that those who hear would think that I am a good speaker, but that they would know that you are an exceedingly great God. And I pray for all who will hear this and do not know you, that you would save them. For all who hear this and know you already, that you would draw us ever nearer to you. And for those who will hear and who are hurting and grieving and breaking, that you would be a gracious comforter beyond anything they have ever imagined or known. I pray that your word would sink the deepest roots into our hearts and bear much fruit in our lives. And where our lives differ from and fall short of you, May we be the ones who are changed. And it is in the name of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit that we ask these things. Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to see you here this morning. If you have not already, please go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Exodus. My name is Austin Shaver, and I'm one of the pastors here. Our pastor, Jamie, and his family are enjoying some well-earned time out of town this weekend, but we will look forward to having them back very soon. If you are just rejoining us for the first time, we are continuing our series through the book of Exodus called Our God Saves. The series and the book focus on the story of how God saves his people. In fact, as Jamie shared just last week, the story in Exodus is that God will build his kingdom. He will accomplish his purposes and no enemy can thwart him. And praise God, that is gloriously, wonderfully true. But as you might imagine, there's a little bit more to the story than that, because if we just leave it there, we might be tempted to think that all that's going to happen is God's going to snap his fingers and voila, all is well, all is right in the world. But that's not what scripture shows us, because you see, 
As the story is told in Exodus, we learn that while God does save his people, he does so through the lives and the work of real flesh and blood people, of real good and evil people. And over the course of decades and centuries and millennia, and it is so important that we understand Genesis and Exodus and what they reveal to us about the nature and character of God because it is very foundational for everything that is to come after that. And if we don't grasp it rightly here, then we're going to be tempted to to despair and to defeat and to fear when it seems like God is taking too long and when it seems like evil is prevailing over good. And God does not intend us to despair or to fear or to be defeated No, he wants to instill in us a rock-ribbed certainty. Not in our own strength, because that's nothing, but in his unfailing, unflagging glory. So if you take nothing else away from our time together this morning, I want you to hear this, because this is the main point of everything we're going to talk about. No matter how long it takes, and no matter how much evil, suffering, and hardship it may entail, God is always working to save his people. Let me say it one more time. No matter how long it may take, and no matter how much evil and suffering and hardship it may entail, God knows and is always working to save his people. And before we get into today's text, I think it's important that we back up and take a running start to remember what brought us to this moment. Jamie has shared some of this in the last couple of weeks, but we need to remember that all the way back in Genesis chapters 12 through 15, God had promised to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. However, God also told him that before they came to the promised land, his offspring would be sojourners in a foreign land. And they would be servants there. And they would be afflicted for 400 years. And that's where we are today in this story. It has been 400 years since Pharaoh told Joseph, bring your family of 70 people. Settle the best land of Egypt. Have all that we have. It is yours. And so God has actually kept the first part of that promise. Abraham's descendants have indeed grown from this little family clan of 70 to a mighty nation now numbering in the millions So God has sheltered them under the shadow of what was then the Western, Near Eastern world's most mighty empire. But there's, of course, a darker flip side to that coin, right? While they've grown to be a nation of millions, they've also suffered under deeply oppressive slavery to the Egyptians. And they've been doing that now for the better part of these 400 years. And I know that timescale is hard for us to imagine. But think, for us, 400 years ago was 1620. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not really fresh on everything that was going on in the world at that time. But I do know I tremble to think about remaining faithful to and steadfast to God over that kind of timescale. Imagine waiting that long for God to keep his promise. Of course, not only are the people in bondage, but now Egypt has come to view them as a true threat. So much so that we saw last week that Pharaoh ordered the murder of every newborn Hebrew boy. And this would seem to be an existential threat, not only to them as a people, but also to God's promise. You know, they've grown to a great nation, yes, but now their cry has become, how long, O Lord? Did you really make us great only to leave us here in this state of squalor? How could we possibly be a blessing to the nations when we're slaves and we're watching our baby boys be slaughtered left and right? God, do you hear us? Do you still care? 
And I don't know where you're at this morning. Probably your situation is not exactly like that of the Hebrews, but maybe you find yourself today wondering, God, do you still hear? God, do you still care? Will you deliver me from this evil and from this suffering? And if that's you this morning, I am so glad that you are here because the whole book of Exodus is going to force us to wrestle with these questions. And in so doing, it's my hope that we will see not only how God worked in the lives of his people in this historical moment, but that we will see that God still works today, that we will have renewed and increased confidence, trust, and hope that the God who heard the cries of his people on the banks of the Nile more than 3,000 years ago is the God who hears the cries of his people today The God who delivered his people from the bondage of yoke and slavery is the God who will this day deliver us from the bondage of yoke and slavery. And so it's all of these things that bring us to Exodus chapter 2 this morning. And our first point, which if you're a note taker, is this. God uses evil for good. So look with me at Exodus chapter 2. Now this chapter in Exodus introduces us to one of the most important human characters in all of the Old Testament in Moses. If you're new to the Bible, it is hard to overstate how important Moses is. First, if you're ever playing Bible trivia and you've got an Old Testament question, very likely he's your answer. So just go with that. If you don't know anything else, go with Moses. But more importantly, he is the one who will ultimately deliver the people out of Egypt. He will lead them right up to the threshold of the promised land. And he will be the one who brings the law that the New Testament will tell us is the tutor that leads us to Christ. But all that is in the future. For today, what we see in chapter 2 are three brief but crucial stories in Moses' early life. And if this were a non-COVID Sunday, we would dig deep into all of these, but we don't have that kind of time, so we're just going to hit the high point. So buckle up, we're going to go fast. In verses 1 through 10, we see the story of Moses' birth. And the first details Scripture gives us are that he is born to a Levite mother and father. And interestingly, that's the tribe that will produce Israel's priests and their leaders one day. Also, we see that at three months old, his mom puts him in a waterproof basket and sets him in the reeds by the Nile River. Now, I imagine for most of us, not a common rite of passage for our three months old. Anybody putting their kids in the river? You may be tempted. Don't confess that now. We'll talk later. But for her, of course, she's doing this because of Pharaoh's decree. Now, the precautions she takes here that she's put him in the basket, he's by the reeds, like he's right up close to the bank. It's clear that she's not trying to abandon him. Rather, you know, she wants to watch him. She wants to stay hidden. And, and technically, even if Pharaoh's men saw her. She goes, hey, I, I did what you said. He's in the river. Go on, Moses. But she also leaves his sister there, Miriam, to watch over him, which is important because in just a moment, there's a twist in that Pharaoh's daughter and her entourage come walking by the river, and they see Moses. And right away, Pharaoh's daughter knows, oh, this is one of the Hebrew boys that should be dead. But then something surprising happens, where we might expect the daughter of a bloodthirsty tyrant who thinks he's a god to be like her dad. The Bible says no. She took pity on him. Now, while this is not the main or even the secondary point of this passage, I think there is an important lesson for us to learn here. A few years ago, there was an author named Jay Norlinger, and he wrote a book called Children of Monsters. And in it, he documented the lives of the children of modern history's most evil dictators. Fascinating book. But one of the things he found in there is that just like all of us, they're individuals. Some of them went on to be like their dads. Others, praise God, took a far more humane course in life. And that's what we see with Pharaoh's daughter here. And so for us, Hopefully, it's an encouraging and maybe convicting reminder that we must take care not to prejudge someone for things they can't control, for their lineage, for their history, for where they're from. Because as long as someone draws breath, 
they are never beyond the reach of God. And we must take great care not to write someone off as being without hope. And you never know how God is working in someone's heart and life. You know, the text here doesn't tell us this directly, but we know that Proverbs 21 says that the heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And so here he has turned the heart of Pharaoh's daughter not to kill, but to save Moses. So back to our story. When it becomes clear that Pharaoh's daughter is not going to kill him, then Miriam appears, just as by chance. Oh, I happen to be walking by. Interesting that you found this baby. How can I help you? Maybe I could find you a nurse. I happen to know one, which ends up being Moses' mom. What, what a great kindness of God here. Now, not to in any way belittle the exquisite pain of giving up your child, but imagine going in a moment from, my son's going to die, like, it's, it's coming, to, oh no, he's going to grow up in the royal household, and I get to spend the first few years of his life with him. What, what an amazing change of events here. And this will have tremendous consequences for Moses, for Israel, for Egypt, and thousands of year later, years later, yes, for us as well. So against all odds, Moses is brought into the world. Now before we move on, I want to make sure we get some important aspects of this story here. First, it's Pharaoh's own decree that leads to Moses' preservation. We get that, right? If, if Pharaoh doesn't issue the decree, his mom doesn't put him in a basket, his daughter doesn't find him, and he doesn't grow up in Pharaoh's household. Second, in trying to kill Moses... Pharaoh has now guaranteed him the greatest protection possible because now he's going to grow up in the royal household. He is safer there than he ever would have been out amongst the people of Israel. And then finally, last week, Jamie showed us how in opposing Israel, Pharaoh has actually set himself up in opposition to God. And we're reminded again that that never goes well for us because in trying to defeat his enemies, Pharaoh has now guaranteed his own defeat. He has saved the one who, humanly speaking, will be his conqueror. So before we move on, what can we take from this? What, what hope is to be found in this story for us? I think two things. One, we can trust that God is always working, even in the midst of the most grievous evil. Do you remember back in Genesis chapter 50 what Joseph said when he revealed himself to his brothers who had sold him into slavery? He said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And you know what? This is still true of God 400 years later in Moses' day. And just as importantly, it is still true of God nearly 4,000 years after those words were first uttered today. No matter the evil that may assail us, you belong to God. He is always, always, always working for your good and for his glory. We must not lose sight of that. Secondly, God's work may take place over a very, very long time. God's people have suffered in slavery for 400 years because as God also told Abraham in Genesis 15, they would not come back to possess the promised land until the sin of those who were already there had been complete. Because you know what? God's timing is always perfect. His justice is always perfect. All his ways are are perfect, and in him, our hope is made complete. That brings us to our second point. God works in his own way. Look with me at verses 11 through 22. Now, if the first story in chapter 2 tells us about the birth of Moses, then in these next two, we see Moses the murderer and a marriage in Midian. And in related news, today's sermon is brought to you by the letter M. As the story continues in verse 11, it tells us Moses has grown up 
And in Acts 7, it says that he's now about 40 years old. So a good bit of time has passed in his life and in the life of God's people. Again, imagine this from their perspective. They have no way of knowing that God is working. They live, they're enslaved, they die. They live, they're enslaved, they die. Just over and over again. All they have to go on is what they know of the nature and character of God from their history with him. Friends, this is why it is so important that we not judge who God is and how he works by our immediate circumstances or by how we feel. We must build that first on the unchanging truth of his word and how he has revealed himself to us. But here's Moses, perhaps surprisingly, going out to his people. And when it says he looked on their burdens, this is more than just casual observation. Rather, take note of the fact that he still regards Israel as his people. Scripture doesn't tell us how he managed to hang on to his identity after all this time. But Hebrews 11, 24 through 25, does tell us, we read it a moment ago, that by faith Moses... When he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So what happens when Moses ventures out to be with his people? It tells us he sees one of them being beaten by an Egyptian. And in response, he decides to take the law into his own hands. And we know this because it says, he looked this way and that, he saw no one. He, He knew what he was about to do was wrong. And so he murders the Egyptian and buries him into the sand. To which we might say, with early 21st century philosopher Ron Burgundy. Boy, that escalated quickly, and it did. But we're going to see in a minute why he did this. There's a reason behind it, and also what happens next is probably not what he expects because the next day he sees two of his own people fighting. He said, brothers, stop. He comes to exert his authority, and and to his shock, they don't receive this well. Instead, they respond, who are you to tell us what to do? Are you going to kill us like you did the guy yesterday? Oh, that's probably not what he expected. He was convinced he had covered his tracks here. But no, instead, his sin is revealed, and now he has to flee to Midian, a backwater hundreds of miles away from this life of luxury he's known in Egypt. So before we look at Moses' arrival in Midian, it's important, again, that we not miss a couple of very important details here. First, even though Moses thought he had succeeded in concealing his sin, he hadn't. And I think it's interesting that later in his life, in Numbers chapter 32, he's going to warn Israel that if they sin against the Lord, they should be sure that their sin would find them out. Unfortunately, Moses had to learn that lesson the hard way. Let's learn from him and not have to repeat his lesson. Secondly, even though the story here does not give us much insight in the, in the way of Moses' thinking and his motivations, Acts chapter 7 does. It tells us this story, but it helps us know what was Moses thinking here. Specifically in verses 24 and 25, it talks about when he saw his brothers being wronged by the Egyptians. It says, he defended the oppressed man and defended him by striking down the Egyptian. And listen to this. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Now, this is hugely important because you see, at this point, Moses has a strong sense of righteousness and justice and, and wanting to right these wrongs, even to the point of taking vengeance and taking the life of another. Maybe you can relate to that today. Maybe you've had those moments in your life when, when you've been wronged or you see wrong being done. You, I've got to make this right. I have got to go fix this, no matter what it takes. But we have to learn the same lesson that Moses did here. You see, he's impulsive. He's relying too much on his own strength. And what's interesting is, he's not wrong about the call. God is calling him to deliver his people, but not this way. It will not be in his power. It will be in a way that all that can ever be said is, God must do this. God has done this. So I ask you this morning, where are you placing your hope? In whose strength are you trusting? 
Is it yours or is it the Lord's? So we're still in point two, but if we consider that story 2A, now we shift to 2B as he's fled to Midian to escape Pharaoh's wrath, where he has an interesting encounter at the well with Rule's daughters. We don't get a lot of detail. It's clear that some shepherds are harassing or otherwise threatening them, and, and he does something to save them. So we again see that, that righteous sense of justice and that quick trigger. But I love what happens next. The daughters go back to their father and they say, this man saved us. And their dad says, where is he? Go get him. Bring him that he may come and eat bread. You forgot Moses. Don't forget Moses. It's a great dinner for Moses because it says he comes, he decides to stay. He marries his daughter Zipporah, and they have a child named Gershom. That's a, that's a big dinner. I assume the timeline has been condensed a little here, but a lot of good things come out of this for Moses. But then look at what he says. He says, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, at first glance, that would seem to suggest that Moses views Midian as the foreign land, but I think commentator John Durham has the better of it here. He says that for the first time in his life, Moses has found home. Moses has a family now. And now he sees Egypt as the foreign land where he was a sojourner all these many years. And I think this is vital, 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 vital in Moses' development. And that the argument is strengthened by Hebrews eleven twenty six, 26, which says that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater, than the, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And there are two things I want to make sure we understand before we move to our final point. First, Moses has seen here, maybe for the first time, something better than these fleeting riches of Egypt. He's found a home. He's found a family. And this is going to help drive him as he eventually leads the people out of Egypt and says there's something better coming. Oh, friend, how, how desperately do we need to remember this in our own lives? Because this world, in all of its riches and in all of its sin and wickedness and evil and injustice, this world is not our home. Do you, do you ever feel that just haunting, aching, longing for home, for a far country, for something better? If you do, it's good because that's what God has said he is preparing for us and preparing us for. We can't forget that. We cannot forget that. Secondly, we must know that neither Moses nor we are called to some Pollyanna, pie-in-the-sky, wishful thinking here. No, this is a call to hard, long, faithful obedience. Moses' path is not going to be easy, and ours is not promised to be easy. Rather, we're just called to follow God's will, God's plan, and God's timing, wherever that may lead us. And isn't that last statement in Hebrews interesting? It says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater now, wait a minute, this is more than a thousand years before Jesus appears on the earthly scene. So where did that come from? How did that get here? Hang on to it because we're going to come back to it in just a moment as we finish. But let's turn to our final point, which is that God hears the cry of his people. God hears the cry of his people. In these final three verses, we suddenly shift from following Moses' life and development to look at the people of Israel and God's response to them. Look back at verse 23 with me. It says, During those many days... The king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue came from, excuse me, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Now those many days are speaking of Moses' 40 years in Midian. And you can hear the relentlessness and the restlessness in that longing, because even as he has been growing and learning in Midian, 
the people remain in bondage day after day after day after seemingly endless day. Slavery. Oppression. Forever, they think. But not only that, it says they're groaning. And this really doesn't capture the depth of it because this is a guttural, primal cry for help, for rescue from their slavery. And I wonder when we pray things like the Lord's Prayer, Lord's Prayer and we say, deliver us from evil, do we, do we mean it down in the gut? Like they would, save us, Lord! End this evil! Is that how we feel about this? Because it says God hears their cry. And what happens next is so crucial because it's the capstone of this whole section and it says that God does four things in response first it says God hears he hears the cry of his people and he hears our cry as well he's not some far off God whom we cannot approach and to whom we cannot bring our pains and our sorrows and our griefs we can trust and know that God hears he hears us when we cry out from the depths of our being secondly God remembers He remembers the promise that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He has not forgotten his people, even though to him, them, it may have felt like it. And because he is unchanging, we can be confident that neither has he forgotten us. No matter how bad things may get, God remembers and keeps his promises. Third, God saw, said he saw them in their distress, distress, in their oppression, in their bondage, and he does not look away. He does not flinch or shy away from their pain. He sees us also. And finally, God knows. God knows his people. He cares for them, for all of his people at all times and in all places. And not only does God hear and know, he's preparing to respond. He's going to send a deliverer who will lead them to the promised land, who will lead them home. You see, the people don't know it yet at this point in the story, but Moses is coming. And this morning, maybe, maybe you, like the people of Israel, you're, you're just sick of the sin, the sin in your heart, the sin in the world around us, and you, you're wondering, when is it going to end? You're longing for someone who will lead you to the promised land, who will lead you home. Friend, I have good, good news for you, because Moses is not the end. No, he's meant to point us to a far better deliverer in Jesus. You say, wait a minute. Are you just trying to shoehorn Jesus in here? Where'd you get that from? No, I I don't think so. Because remember what we saw in here is that Moses regarded the reproach of Christ as greater. And he did because Moses' hope, Israel's hope, is the same as ours. And it's trusting in God and its promises. Because you see, for them, Moses was coming, but Moses was going to fail. And Moses was going to die. But for us, And for all people everywhere, we have a better word. If you can peer through the sin that surrounds us, if you can peer out to that far horizon, do you see who's coming? It's the one who promises to make known to us the path of life. The one in whose presence is the fullness of joy. The one whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. For us, Christ has come and Christ has not failed. And Christ is not dead. No, he, he is alive. And he is coming again. And you know what? Home is coming with him. And until that day, we remember that Christ is our greater Moses.
He is our deliverer, and he is our hope every single day. And his promise to us is that if we will repent of our sin and believe in him, he will save us. Now, we remember this every week here at Redeemer by taking the Lord's Supper together. And if you are new with us, we are so glad that you're here. We invite everyone who is a believer in Christ and who has made that known to the church to partake of this family meal with us. That's not where you're at this morning. If you don't know Jesus yet as Savior and Lord, we're going to ask that you not partake, not out of a desire to exclude you, but because we want you to know him in the fullness of who he is. And there's no magic in these things, but we do this to remember Christ's work for us. And I would urge you during this time to ask the Lord to examine your heart, to root out your sin, and to draw you to him. Now, because of COVID, we're going to proceed a little bit differently. If you're just rejoining us, we won't be passing the plates. In a moment, we're going to sing, and we're going to ask that you come, at least one person from each household, to get cups for your house. And they work a little differently. You're going to want to turn them away because they splatter. Also, in the top, there is a substance that both looks and tastes like a packing peanut. It's not. It's the bread. So make sure you get that. And then down to the juice-like substance. But after we finish singing, I will come back, and we will take the bread and cup together. So let's pray and sing, and you come.